Okay, if you have a Bible, you can open to Matthew's Gospel. We'll look at chapter 1, verses 18 through 25 this morning. And the text is also in bulletin. Uh, So last week, we started a series in Matthew's Good News. Good News, Gospel, same thing. Uh, His Good News about Jesus. Um, We started by looking at what what I'm calling part one of Jesus' origin story. Uh, Matthew traced uh, the genealogy from Abraham uh, through the royal line of David down to Jesus to prove that Jesus is the long-promised king, the the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ of uh, Israel. And we began to see uh, what that means, what kind of person Jesus is, this Christ, uh, in that he would adopt such a crazy, messed-up family tree as this, as you see in the genealogy, Uh, that he would even welcome and adopt people like us. So uh, after the service uh, last Sunday, um, one of the comments trying to uh, fix uh, what was wrong with it uh, Joe Pope suggested, <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't that bad, he suggested that uh, because of the love of Christ, we could continue the list, we could continue that genealogy that we read, it says, Mary brought forth Jesus, we could continue it and say legitimately, and Jesus brought forth Nathan, Jesus brought forth Sarah, Jesus brought forth Nick, Jesus, etc., etc. He brought forth each one of us. Uh, that's a legitimate thing to do. Because of the grace of Jesus, <clears throat> we really belong in his own family, every bit as truly as everyone else in that list. So that passage last week started there in verse 1, and it says, um, in most translations, it says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That word for genealogy is uh, literally Genesis. Genesis is the word in Greek. So the Genesis, the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ in our passage this morning begins with that same word in verse 18, because verse 18 literally says the Genesis of Jesus Christ was like this. This is what it was like. So that's why we're thinking of it as origin story, parts one and two. Uh, He continues his origin story here, telling us how Jesus came into the world. The particular story of his uh, conception, actually. So let me tell you, this is a wild story. It's unlike anything that the world had ever even imagined before it happened. And uh, this little origin story has since changed the world uh, forever. So let's talk about it. Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, thank you for speaking to us in your Son and for your Spirit's work of inspiring this written word that we have about your Son. Please work in us now by that same Christ-exalting Spirit so that we would truly hear and receive and abide in your word so that we would enjoy the richness of relationship with you through it. We pray in Jesus' name. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So this origin story uh, starts off pretty small, but its effects ripple through, uh, throughout history and, uh, and throughout the world. At first, it's just a bit of a personal love story, right? Um, a love story drama thing. Joseph and Mary, they're engaged in that culture, uh, being betrothed, being engaged, had more legal uh, weight than it does in our day. Um, uh, but they still hadn't had marital relations. They're not actually married. So they hadn't come together, as is pointed out by Matthew, and she's found to be with child. That would be heartbreaking and scandalous in any culture around the world, right? But it would be particularly difficult in that culture because under normal circumstances, Joseph, being somebody who's expecting to be married, they're they're betrothed, there's this legal contract at least, and uh, then she's discovered to be with child, and it wasn't his child, He would have been expected to accuse Mary publicly, and Jewish law, biblical law, actually um, would have had Mary stoned to death for that. They couldn't do that under Roman occupation. Uh, The Jews had no right to uh, exercise their law if it meant killing somebody. So, uh, but that's what the law said, and that's what their culture would have uh, leaned toward, right? He would have had to accuse her publicly. And it would at least bring great shame to her. So Joseph uh, couldn't bring himself to continue with the wedding. I mean, you can imagine how painful it would be to find your fiancé pregnant. But he also couldn't bring himself to contribute further to the ruin of Mary's life. He's a good guy. He is a just man, a righteous man. That's what that says in verse 19. So again, under normal circumstances, we might think his decision to break off the engagement uh, to do it quietly. That's good. That's good. But these were not normal circumstances. God doesn't just send angels to visit you in your dreams under normal circumstances. In fact, rarely at all throughout history has God sent angels to people at all in any form. Dreams are not, right? Uh, So God is doing something really big here. And what is revealed is that Mary is not with child due to promiscuity. She's not like infidelity, unfaithfulness. She's not with child because of any bad reason. It's not in any way bad that she is pregnant. It is entirely good because she's found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, many people have not found that explanation persuasive. Of course, found with child through the Holy Spirit. Mm Mm-hmm. They've continued to suspect Mary of infidelity. You get hints of that throughout the Gospels. Um, And admittedly, it might be hard to believe because it's so entirely unusual. It's it's singularly unique, really, in all of history. This has never happened before. But this is what the angel tells Joseph. And Luke records in his Gospel, uh, in in his Gospel, um, an angel telling Mary herself the same thing. So both... Joseph and Mary have been visited by angels and told this, that the child has no human father. This is unique. The child has no human father. This child was not conceived by normal, biological, merely human means. 
This child's father is God the Father. This child was conceived by the Holy Spirit to be born of a virgin. The Gospels demonstrate clearly and persuasively that this child, Jesus, is uniquely from God. There's nobody else in the world who is like this throughout history. He is unique. He is from God in a unique way. In fact, the testimony of the Scriptures is that Jesus is not just from God. He is God. Jesus is God himself. He's the Son of God. He's the Word of God, as John says in his Gospel, chapter 1, the Word of God who became flesh in order to dwell among us. No one's like him. In fact, no one has ever even imagined anyone like him. Yes, people have always imagined what it would be like for the gods to come down and dwell among us. There's stories of that uh, throughout history, throughout the pagan myths, right? Uh, So many ancient pagan myths about that happening, gods coming down to dwell among us. But never anything like this, because when God came to earth in Jesus Christ, he didn't come as this giant warlike figure striding down from high places, striding down from a mountain. He didn't fall out of space in a fiery ball of light. He didn't float through a glowing portal in the sky. He didn't come as an eagle or a wolf or a koi fish or any other sort of animal spirit guide. He didn't merely inhabit or possess a grown human body like we imagine, you know, demons possessing people. He didn't come as the demigod mixed offspring of a god and a mortal. When God came to earth, the creator caused a new creation to come forth from the old creation. That's what this is. The Gospels, they don't describe the moment of the incarnation, the moment when God became a human being with uh, mystical language or sensational language or fantastic language. Right? The Gospels don't describe the Spirit's conception of Jesus at all, because how could you describe the divine creative act of God? How could we understand that? We don't know precisely how this mystery came to be. We only confess that it came to be. The Spirit of God made someone new, and that someone is the eternal Son of God living as a human being. God himself became an embryo, inside the body of a teenage girl. The very word of God became one of the voiceless. God Almighty made himself the most vulnerable creature you could imagine, a bundle of cells utterly dependent on a teenage girl for life. I mean, those things are so incompatible in our imagination. How could it be be possible at all for God to become an embryo, for the Almighty to become so humble and so vulnerable. But Jesus reveals God to us truly. He reveals, apparently, it's not incongruent for God to do something like this. It is not out of character for God to be Jesus. At every stage of his human development, every stage of his life, even his death, that's not out of character for God to be Jesus. The God who came into the world in this way as an embryo inside a teenage girl, the God who came into the world this way, he would never be headed toward any sort of like worldly flex of power, right? His road wouldn't lead him to the security and the strength of self, the domination and the victory of a warlike king. Coming as an embryo, that was his flex. 
coming as an embryo. That demonstrates his kind of power. And we do see him exercise his power ultimately at the cross where he lays down his life for the good of those that he loves. So Stanley Hauerwas is a commentator on this uh, gospel. He says, this is the central question that animates the story of Matthew, the story that Matthew will tell. How can it be that the one long expected, the Messiah, the one Israel believes will free it from its political servitude, will not triumph as kings do with their armies? To be trained as a disciple is to learn why this Jesus, the son of David, the one true king, must suffer crucifixion. This God, incarnate in the virgin's womb, came to do things we never imagined a God would do. The Gospels declare that when we know Jesus, we are truly knowing God. Because first and foremost, and forever, Jesus is God. He's the Son of God. He's fully divine. He's of one substance with the Father. He's equal with the Father in power and in glory. He has always been God. There's never been a time in all eternity when he was not. And then in time and space, in this, the humblest of beginnings... This God added the true nature of humanity to himself. He didn't give up his divinity, and he never will. He exercised his true divinity in becoming this man, Jesus. This was the divine will. This was his plan. This was his initiative. This was his power at work, which reveals exactly what kind of God we're dealing with. For God to become Jesus is simply for God to be who he is. It's for God to be this God the God who would become Jesus. He's a God who communes with us in our creatureliness. He's willing to do that, and he can do that. He's a God who communes with us in our finiteness. He communes with us in our humble estate. He he communes with us in our vulnerability. He communes with us in our suffering. So Psalm 138 says, Though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. But the haughty, he knows from afar. So he's not haughty. He understands what it means to be haughty. He he understands that from a distance. He knows. He regards the lowly. Right? He's not the kind of God who maintains a proper distance from the lowly. He has come to intimately know the lowly as one who is lowly himself. And again, it's in perfect accordance with his version of highness. This is what it means for him to be high. His version of majestic glory and splendor to come to associate so closely with the lowly to be one of us. That's who Jesus is. He is Emmanuel. He's God with us. And that's something worth contemplating, not just at Christmas time, uh, but throughout the rest of your life. It's entirely appropriate for us to sing Christmas songs all year long. It's a Christmas world now because of Jesus. So Richard Sibbs, uh, the Puritan, said this. He said that the incarnation is a greater mystery than that of creation. We cannot too often meditate on these things. It is the life and soul of a Christian. It is the marrow of the gospel. It is the wonder of wonders. We need not wonder at anything after this. If Jesus truly is God, and if he truly reveals God to us, then it means there's no God apart from the God who's with us. So what does it mean that Jesus has this humble origin story, that he's this God who's with us, even in a story like this one? What does it mean? Well, for one thing, where where exactly is he in this part of the story? In these 
in this paragraph here, in these verses. I mean, God's everywhere. God's everywhere, true. And also, the incarnate God has a bodily location, so where's the incarnate God in this origin story? You can't see him, but he's there in Mary's womb, an unexpected pregnancy. If this story were happening in our day, uh, there would be a strong temptation to terminate the pregnancy and to abort the child. In our country, almost a third of teen pregnancies end that way. People think abortion solves big problems. Uh, Would it be a good solution for the social stigma problem? It would save Mary from severe consequences. At the very least, we're talking about embarrassment and humiliation that lasts for a long time. More likely, a lifelong stigma, uh, disadvantages of every kind, economic, um, relational, if not death itself, right? These are the kinds of consequences she faces. And an abortion would save face for Joseph from being forever associated with this promiscuous young woman, whether he marries her or not. That's the kind of thing that we do when we want to save ourselves. We take matters of life and death into our own hands. We abort children. We distance ourselves from the lowly. But when God came into the world, it changed everything. And he had this angel tell Joseph, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Do not fear everything that that means. Even though it will cause some difficulty in your lives, don't be afraid. That's the kind of message God is always telling people. Uh, He says, don't be afraid because I'm with you. Don't be afraid because I'm with you. That's what he's saying when he reveals the names of Jesus and Emmanuel, these two names that are applied to Jesus here in this passage. The name Jesus is a form of Joshua, which means God saves. God saves. And the name Emmanuel, as it says here in our passage, it means God with us. He's Jesus because he's Emmanuel. God saves us because he's with us. In the Old Testament book of Joshua, which is where Jesus gets his name, God tells Joshua, who is sort of his mediator among his people, leader of his people, He tells Joshua, I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. He says it repeatedly. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. In in Jesus, God saves us. He saves us ultimately from being apart from God. That's the salvation that we need. That's the terrible fate we've chosen by our sins, to be apart from God. That's what it means to sin and to rebel against God. I want to be apart from you. I don't want to have anything to do with you. My way, not your way. We need to be saved from that. And God wouldn't stand for that. It's not who he is. He's the God who's with us, and he will save his people from their sins. That's what the angel says of Jesus. What we need most, no matter who we are, is to be reunited to God. That's what we need most. That's the thing you need most. For for him to remove the obstacle of our sin and to remove the judgment that's standing against us in order to restore us to true and full communion with himself. And this is what he has done in Jesus, in his life, in his death, on the cross, in his resurrection, in his ascension. He has saved us 
by being with us, by being for us, rather than remaining apart from us or standing against us. He saved us. And in the first step of this salvation, God became an embryo. He wanted to do that. He wanted to do that. So uh, pastor uh, and uh, theologian Garrett Dawson says, God became an embryo for embryos to be with embryos. There's something about his becoming so humble and so vulnerable as that that raises up and exalts the life of an embryo through association with him. Embryos become holy because they belong to God, because God became one. Jesus was a fetus, just like we all have been. Jesus went through a birth canal, just like we have all done. He took his first breath as a newborn baby. He depended on the care of his parents. He nursed at his mother's breast. His taking on human flesh means he has truly been one of us, for us, to be with us, to bring our humanity at every stage back into relationship with God. Because he was both God and an embryo, he's reconciled embryos to God in himself. Because he was both God and baby, both God and toddler, he's reconciled babies and toddlers to God. Because he was both God and child, both God and teenager, both God and adult, he's reconciled all these to God. Because the God-man suffered, he's made holy our suffering. Because the God-man died, he has redeemed our deaths. Because the God-man humbled himself, he has glorified humility. By associating with the lowly and the vulnerable, he has shown us the true nature of divinity. And he's exalted those who meet him in those low and vulnerable places. Even when he was this little bundle of human cells in Mary's womb, he was already saving people from themselves. He was already doing it. He was saving Joseph, who had been about to distance himself from God's Savior and from his work of salvation. Joseph Joseph had been about to take matters into his own hands and uh, take himself out of the equation. But when the word of the gospel, the word of Jesus, came to Joseph, Joseph gave up his plans, he gave up his fears. And he embraced Jesus, and he entrusted himself to God through his relationship to Jesus, this embryo. God's almighty power to save came in the form of this silent, vulnerable embryo. That kind of humble, lowly condescension on God's part, it makes God known to us. This is the kind of place where we truly meet with God. And that means it's perfectly okay to be humble. It's perfectly human to be humble. In fact, it's divine to be humble because it's God who humbled himself. And that good news has absolutely changed the world forever. Now it's okay to not be the most impressive person in the world. It's okay. It's okay to be a child. It's okay to be disabled or otherwise dependent on other people for your whole life. It's okay to be dependent as a child or as an elderly person. It's okay to be lowly or poor or weak or despised or vulnerable. It's okay. If our God could become an embryo, if our God could become a baby needing constant attention, 
if our God could face humiliation and crucifixion, if our God could open himself up to love or to rejection like this, those things are good for us. There's nothing more good than that. Things like humility and vulnerability and service and caring for the lowly, these were despised in the world until God revealed these to be his own glorious attributes. He became a human, and he made it okay to be a human. More than okay, divinely glorious, actually. This is especially good for us if we actually want to know God, if we actually just want to be in a relationship with God and be with him where he is. He has been in places that embarrass the strong and mighty and independent and self-sufficient. He's been in these embarrassing places, ready to meet us there, if we won't avoid him. Are you among the lowly? God has not abandoned you, and he never will. Do you have the chance to associate with the lowly? So has the Son of God, and he jumped at the chance. If God became an embryo, how does that change your relationship with embryos? How does it change your relationship with God? Who would do that? If God became a child, how does it change your relationship with children? If God made himself vulnerable and dependent, how does that change your relationship with the weak and lowly in this world? He jumped at the chance to take our nature to himself permanently, to be one of us, to be with us forever. That's his pledge, his lasting commitment to us in Jesus Christ. So says this humble origin story that has changed the world for all its divine humility. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it's hard to believe that uh, you would want to be with us when we have so set ourselves against you through our sin. Yet here is Jesus. You sent him to save us from our sin. Thank you, Jesus, for being God with us. Please, Holy Spirit, help us to consider these things, to consider Jesus, to consider what he reveals about God. Please help us to see the strange goodness of your story, to celebrate your humility, and to be changed by your humility. We want to have the same mindset that is ours in Christ Jesus. We want to commune with you, even in the lowly places, because it's communion with you, Lord Jesus. And nothing is better than that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.